This podcast is made possible by Sage Intact and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Carol Lowe, CFO of Sealed Air, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 258. As a finance leader, are you driving driving change in your organization? How are you driving change within your organization? In this episode, we speak to Lawrence Levy, the former CFO of Pixar and author of To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History. I'm sitting in my office and my phone rings and I just picked it up and I hear on the other end of the line, hi, this is Steve Jobs. I saw your picture in a magazine a couple of years ago. I thought we'd work together someday and I have a company that I'd like to tell you about. And I thought, well, maybe he wants to my help to turn around next. And that's what I assumed. And then when he said um, the company's name is Pixar, I, I was... I had probably barely heard of Pixar, and so I was sort of like, to myself, I was, you know, what on earth is Pixar all about? Listen to our complete interview with Lawrence right after these words from our sponsor. It's a question every growing business must answer. How do you scale your organization to accommodate growth while reducing risk? Sage Intech provides the instant visibility into deep operational and financial requirements that inform decision-making when scale is top of mind. By automating error-prone manual tasks and allowing your team to focus on the analysis of more accurate information, Sage Intech provides the visibility required to confidently scale your organization. Sage Intact is the only AICPA preferred provider of cloud financial management software. Hello, we're speaking to Lawrence Levy, author of the just released To Pixar and Beyond. And Pixar is, of course, the amazing filmmaking company that was responsible for the uh, filmmaking innovation behind such movies as Toy Story. The company uh, went public a week after uh, the release of Toy Story, in fact, and Lawrence Levy was the CFO at Pixar at that exciting place in time. Lawrence, welcome. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Nice to talk to you, Jack. Yeah, uh, we're excited to speak to you about uh, To Pixar and Beyond and of course, how it came to be that the fascinating and enigmatic Steve Jobs back in 1994 picked up the phone and called you because he was looking for a, a CFO, we're led to believe. Um, and he was calling on behalf of a company he bought back in the mid-1980s for a $5 million uh, price, a company a short time later that became known as Pixar. But first, Lawrence, uh, we are CFO thought leader, and whenever we have a CFO guests, we are required to begin our interviews with the question, how did you become a CFO? And, uh, as a graduate of Harvard Law School, we're very much intrigued how you got on the finance track. Well, I probably took the non-traditional path in order to get there. And I guess I did graduate from Harvard Law School and I practiced law for about 10 years. I was practicing intellectual property and specializing in technology transactions out here in Silicon Valley. 
I had, as an undergrad, gone to the School of Business at Indiana University, where I had studied accounting. So I was very familiar with um, the accounting and uh, and business notions, although I hadn't sort of worked or come up through that track. And I eventually went to work for one of my clients, a company called Electronics for Imaging. Uh, the company's still around, although when I joined it, it was just a tiny startup. And I began sort of by default almost to take on a lot of the financial responsibilities, a lot of the CFO type of roles. Startups can sometimes be a sort of revolving door of executives, and there was a lot of work that needed to be done in that domain, and I was doing it behind the scenes. And we took that company public, and I did. Uh, I was very involved in that uh, public offering. Uh, I wasn't the CFO, but uh, I did a lot of it behind the scenes. When it came time to search for a new CFO, I was put in charge of that search, and I hired a recruiter, and we couldn't find anybody, and he said to me, you know what, even though this is against my interests, uh, you should really think about doing this, uh, because I don't think you're going to find anybody that meets your standards. And I told him that I couldn't do it, or I shouldn't do it, because I felt that I didn't have the background coming up through the accounting profession, even though I had some training in it. And so I actually said no. And then a few months went by, and he came back to me and he said, look, there are two different kinds of CFOs. You can certainly come up through the formal traditional accounting kind of path, but you can also be a CFO that is much more strategic in nature. And if you're that kind of CFO, then it means you have to hire really good people to, um, that you can rely upon for the accounting details, really good controllers, really good staff, but you could still be that kind of a CFO. And I think that was kind of forward thinking at the time, but I actually I felt that was good advice and I ended up taking it. So I became CFO of Electronics for Imaging. Okay. And what, what year was that about? Oh my goodness, that must have been around 1990, must have been around 1992. All right. So then there came a day when you get a phone call. Is that is that as simple as it begins? I mean, it when... is. It is as simple as that. And I sort of start the book out this way. I, I'm sitting in my office and my phone rings and I just picked it up and I hear on the other end of the line. Hi, this is Steve Jobs. I saw your picture in a magazine a couple of years ago. I thought we'd work together someday. And I have a company that I'd like to tell you about. And, you know, I had a sort of a cascade of reactions at that point, uh, but one of which was uh, he wants to talk to me about Next Computer because that was the company he was most closely associated with. And Next had sort of notoriously got out of the hardware business that it had been started to do. So it was kind of being written off as a company that didn't have a future. And I thought, well, maybe he wants to my help to turn around next. And that's what I assumed. And then when he said, um, the company's name is Pixar, I, I was, I had probably barely heard of Pixar. And so I was sort of like, to myself, I was, you know, what on earth is Pixar all about? Did he, uh, I mean, did he seem to know you? I mean, did he ask you specific questions? Um, and and uh, again, he had seen you in a magazine article. I'm just wondering what from your background 
put you on that list uh, of people he was going to reach out to? I don't know. You know, I am sure that he he must have checked me out somewhat. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, I probably, you know, had a reputation at the time. I and mean, I'd done a lot of sort of creative deals, a lot of creative thinking. I'd, I'd started this technology transactions group at really big, you know, the biggest law firm in um, uh, in Silicon Valley. So, oh. you know, he, he may have checked out. You know, you know some of those things, but then of course he was going to sort of check me out as well. And then after that, you know, we we obviously spent some time together in what was more of a of an interviewing you know kind of process. But that was how it got started. Well, I want to um, dwell on this a little longer because I think it's it's interesting that at that time Pixar was really its biggest client was Disney. It had one client really at that place in time, and the IPO that you were going to help our architect eventually would allow uh, Pixar, of course, to uh, grow into other, uh, you know, into actual movie making instead of sort of outplacement or out- outsourcing it. So what you sign yourself on for is still, there's a lot to be done here, and it's unproven in some ways. Completely. And I, and I think, you know, that very much is the case with sort of startup companies and, you know, I, I sometimes say it takes a certain amount of naivete to go into a startup, and I probably went into Pixar with a healthy dose of that. Um, I went in there, you know, I went through the sort of interview process. I, you know, I wasn't sure going in what their business strategy was or could be. Uh, you know, they were making software, render-man software. They were making animated short films. They were doing commercials. They had this contract with Disney. Um, for the for the making of Toy Story, they had a bunch of different things going on, and in my mind, I sort of thought, you know, between all those things, maybe it would be possible to, you know, build a robust business with some of those uh, some of those things offsetting the risks of some of the other things. Uh, and so I went in there on that notion. That notion was completely wrong, but at least it's what I was I was thinking at the beginning. Um. Okay. So I have to understand better, what was it that you had as a CFO that in Jobs' mind made you right for the job at, at Pixar? Now, you mentioned the work you had done at the law firm, and I have to believe you had revealed something of an, a creative edge when it came to finance. But was it that, or did you achieve something of a, a unique rapport with him? And certainly you weren't casting yourself as a traditional uh, finance leader, but what was it? Yeah, I just, it's a really good point. I, I think there's an element of, of truth to all of that. I mean, Steve and I, as we started to get to know each other before I took the job, you know, first of all, we, we clearly hit it off. I mean, we just hit it off from the get-go. And there was an instant kind of chemistry between us and, you know, the dialogue conversation was easy. We had fun. It was, um, it was great from the beginning. And I think, you know, maybe Steve had some notion that, uh, you know, he, you know, he was drawn to, you know, someone that both had sort of financial and legal discipline, but at the same time would sort of think out of the box, would, would go in sort of with an open mind and, you know, creatively be able to sort of sift through the strategic options. And so, and, you know, that did turn out to be very much, you know, what, you know, what happened. There was a huge amount of effort on the, on the strategic side, on the cultural side, on, on the sort of 
um, qualitative side of imagining what it was Pixar could be, and that was married with, um, and the sort of background as well, the quantitative support for, for those discussions. And so perhaps he saw the, the, the possibilities of all of that when we, as we started to get to know each other. Now, the finance function as it existed in Pixar, again, Pixar was still very much a startup, even though it was already, uh, you know, I, I actually, I think it's probably around eight years old or nine years old um, at this point in time. But the people that were there were so passionate about what they were doing. Um, but coming back to that, was there much of a finance function existing in Pixar? Did you have a controller or what was uh, what was exactly there? No, I mean, it's true Pixar had been around for a few years, but from a corporate, from a financial point of view, it was it was a company on life support, I would say. I mean, Steve was covering the payroll for the Pixar employees that were not covered by the, the Disney agreement uh, uh, out of his personal checkbook every month. I mean, he had put, imagine you go to a company and the, you know, the balance sheet is basically like you know, negative equity, negative $50 million, and there's no... The, the, there's really very little to show for that. And so he had gone through a huge amount of money. Um, and so from that side, the, um, and there was no, there was no finance function really at all within the company. It just hadn't built up those systems at all. And it was, had been focused on the technology side, the creative side, the production side. But um, that's what I found when I got there. <laughs> Ouch. Now, was that uh, $50 million uh, number you mentioned, was that uh, uh, cumulative or was that an annual? Uh, cumulative. $50 million was his cumulative um, investment in the company up to that point in time. Oh, I got but, it. Okay. Um, okay. You know, but by even, you know, by Silicon Valley, by venture capital standards, you know, and especially in that day, uh, that was an almost unheard amount of amount of money to to have invested and, and uh, in, a, in a company and not have any return or, or very little to show for it at that moment. So I, I again, you you you're taking something of a leap of faith because as much of a rock star that Steve Jobs was, his stock was a little down at that place in time because Next was not, as you I think indicated, not the super success story at that that place in time. Clearly, and Jobs had left Apple years earlier. So, um, you know, I mean, did it cross your mind? Am I being captivated by, you know, Silicon Valley's, uh, you know, champion dream maker here? Or uh, is there really a business here? I mean, what was your your state of mind when you accepted the position? Well, I was thinking about all of that. I mean, he was, I would say at that point, he was closer to being a has-been than a rock star uh, because he had a string of, failures in a row. I mean, a couple of those he'd had at Apple before he left, well-known stories about the uh, the, the original uh, Lisa computer and the original Apple Macintosh computer. Then he left Apple and he uh, attempted the next computer and that didn't work. And there was a Pixar imaging computer and that didn't work. So this is, so and there were books being written at the time, sort of, you know, in, in some ways, you know, wondering whether it was time to, to write him off. Um, but you know, my uh, I spent quite a lot of time in the startup world, and my sense was that, you know, these these things always look very risky, and um, a lot of it is about chemistry, uh, and there's always a lot of challenges, a lot of work to be done. I had a great chemistry with Steve. I had good chemistry with the 
the team at Pixar, Ed Catmull, John Lasseter, Bill Reeves, and others. And I felt that I had something complimentary to bring to the table. So I, I would bring something that the company didn't have. And I also thought to myself that, you know, I didn't know how they were going to get there, but, you know, these guys were winners. They were doing really incredible work. And so, um, and so that left me with a sort of a feeling that this was perhaps a, uh, an adventure worth going on. Can you share with us some of the milestones? Uh, and it was only a, it goes public in, uh, you know, shortly after, uh, I, I know the Netscape IPO was sort of a, a memorable was, event. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in some ways, yeah. that helped. Um, well, in some ways, it did. I mean, you know, one of the milestones, you know, I would say things got worse before they get better, got it, before they got better. When I got into Pixar, I think that I uh, took about maybe a couple of months. And, you know, I came to conclude that the company was in more dire straits than I had even imagined. And that was in large measure because I grew to understand the details of the relationship between Pixar and Disney. Uh, and, you know, there was a decent amount of hostility within the company and angst about Steve himself, who had never spent any time at the company and was sort of perceived as a bit of a sort of absentee landlord that, that everyone you know, kind of worried about. And so there were some cultural challenges and then the economic challenges were worse than I thought. So my first milestone was sort of, coming home one day and saying, you know, I think I made the biggest mistake of my career. So it, it went down before it went up. Uh, um, and, but then from there, you know, we, we sort of started to piece together a plan in a way. And, and, um, and that's when things at least started to gain some momentum. Okay. So as a finance leader, you actually would accompany uh, jobs into the entertainment world as he sought to define what the opportunity was and connect uh, with that world and sharpen um, the vision of what Pixar uh, would become. Well, yes, in fact, you know, that, that's an important part of the story that I cover in some detail in the book. Uh, and you can see how we... Um, it was sort of a revelation in a way of, of even thinking that, you know, this, we were going to be an entertainment company. Uh, and it was a revelation almost by default in the sense that, well, nothing else is going to work. This is our only shot. And this is a terrible shot, but it's our only shot. And we both knew at the same time that if that was going to be our direction as the business leaders of the company, we didn't know anything about the entertainment business. You know, we were... Both um, our careers have come from Silicon Valley. We knew software, hardware, semiconductors, um, all, all those kinds of things, but uh, but not entertainment. And so we set out to learn it. And so we 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 literally shuttled back and forth to Hollywood, talking to as sort of many people as we could, as we pieced together what that uh, you know the, how that how that business worked. It, it wasn't easy to do that. So, but yeah, we, we, we kind of did it. We totally did it together. Okay. So, uh, I have the numbers here. Pixar's IPO, uh, was a blockbuster raising 132 million and giving the company a market capitalization of 1.4 billion jobs. Of course, at the time owned 80% of the company and he became a billionaire, which uh, many people 
are unaware of <laughs> just because yeah. it's been eclipsed by Apple and the story of uh, reinvigorating Apple. So that uh, is is uh, a fascinating place in time. And, and again, I want to come back to this one thought about finance, because there is this sense that finance is exactly the type of controlling function that someone like Steve Jobs would rather work around than, than collaborate with. And um, can you reflect on how he viewed your role and how you viewed the role? You know, I viewed the role as, you know, there, there, there are two sides. There's the strategic side where we are just collaborating as partners trying to figure out a a direction and a strategy for a business. And there are a lot of elements that, that go into that. And then there's the, the numbers part, the, the pure financial element of it. You know, how is this going to be funded? What is the profitability going to look like? What's, um, you know, how will this grow from a, you know, a, a numbers <laughs> spreadsheet you know, point of view? And, um, uh, and, you know, when the numbers begin to show things that, are sort of counter to your strategic dreams, you know, you have to face the reality of what the numbers are saying. That's when the sort of rubber hits the road. That's where the tension comes because the numbers might belie the dream. And, and so there were a lot of discussions about that. And in those scenarios, when I'm looking at the numbers that, uh, that I, that I believe that, you know, I've, gone through, you know, every assumption, every, you know, line of them, then I will stand up for what that means. And, uh, and eventually, you know, I think Steve respected that process. And so when I came to a point of saying, no, we, we have to pay attention to this, um, you know, from, from the financial side, um, I wasn't cavalier about that. If I said it, you know, I meant it. And then he would, um, respect that. And so th that, that process was, was, uh, really helpful. Now I, I do have to ask about his, uh, so-called, uh, distortion field. Do you think you ever encountered it? Uh, and of course I'm talking about how Steve Jobs was known to be able to make people think differently by, uh, having his own little, uh, universe around him. I don't know how else to put it, but the distortion field, did you, uh, do you feel as though you encountered it firsthand? In some ways, yes. I mean, Steve was was very passionately intense about sort of everything he did. And so whether it's and it's only in the book, I tell the story about, you know, valuing Pixar and the IPO. Um, but, you know, there are also you know, you know, other kinds of examples. And so, um, you know, and, and so you're and, and so, you know, from his side, I, I don't think it's a distortion field it's his sort of genuine passion his genuine dreams his you know his genuine conviction and he he brings a lot of um you know knowledge intelligence and and conviction to that and so um and working with steve was i think about working with that and um forging a collaboration you know making that part of it because there's value to that as well we, we want to uh, discover a little bit about what you've been up to in in uh, uh, following and what led you to write the book but I I this intersection of finance and innovation and finance and design is, is a a place that i don't think gets uh, explored enough and i imagine your book is uh, a wonderful place to uh, explore it so we look forward to reading it i just want to mention you know it's interesting Steve Jobs when he does go to Apple 
returned to Apple, of course. One of his main uh, connectors, or at least from what I've read, it appears to be the CFO, Fred Anderson, of course, who uh, is sort of uh, Jobs' uh, communication with the board. Uh, Fred Anderson played a key role and actually becomes uh, the primary connection between Jobs and Apple's board. And it's it's that relationship with Anderson, I think, that later facilitates him once more becoming Apple's leader. And so, you know, along the way, Jobs reveals this sort of enlightened uh, view of finance, uh, just how he personally sought you out and then builds uh, a relationship with Fred. I think demonstrates that on some level. Yeah, did you and Fred Anderson cross paths, perhaps? Well, um, I met at Fred several times, actually, but only in a sort of you know social context, not not in a in a business context. So, so I can't really speak to you know his connection or role at Apple or relationship with Steve. But I, you know, I did. So, you know, meet him a few times, and that, that was great. Okay. Also, uh, removed from Silicon Valley here, we're fascinated by what must happen sometimes when, when people like you guys cross paths. It should be interesting. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so can you share with us, uh, so what, what's happened post-Pixar, uh, post and uh, were you there um, with the, you know, up to the acquisition, or how long did you, uh, you remain with? Uh, with the- yes, I did. In fact, I, you know, I, I actually, the... the, the um, prologue of the book starts with the conversation that I had with Steve, uh, which initiated the, um, the process of that acquisition. And so I was on the board of directors, even though I was no longer the CFO. So I was on the board of directors all the way through the end of that acquisition when the board of directors dissolved and uh, Pixar became part of Disney. So um, I kind of saw, saw it all, all the way through. That's a you know a very interesting chapter as well where where Jobs finally uh, because I think Disney wanted to buy it for years and um, finally uh, there's a new CEO at Disney and it, it's yeah. allowed to happen um, so very interesting so you grew the company uh, how, what was the growth uh, during your period of tenure as a CFO well you know we went from um, uh, you know, having no profits, no earnings, negative, you know, losses every year to, um, you know, making these films that were generating, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of profits. Pixar was gaining about half of those. And so the growth, the growth was enormous. You know, it was never as interesting. One of the challenges with Pixar is that you never got smooth growth lines because of the nature of film release dates and the way revenue comes in from films. And so we really had a challenging time and we had to, you know, the the analysts, um, you know, had to understand that sort of Pixar's, um, you know, growth was never going to be an even trajectory. It was it was sort of lumpy. And um, but they eventually sort of all got on board with that and, and understood that. So it was really a non-traditional um, growth model, even though it was generating a large amount of profits. There's a, an anecdote in one of the books uh, where, uh, again, Steve Jobs, forgive me, uh, goes to uh, attend the opening of Pocahontas in New York. And, of course, um, it was held in a large tent in Central Park with the mayor of New York City there. And what it leaves behind in Jobs' mind is he loves these grand events, of course, which we see at Apple and um, great ways to launch products and always the marketing minded uh, CEO. 
Um, but all that had to be built at Pixar. There, I mean, I, I don't imagine there was much of a marketing <laughs> function. Well, kind of. The, the thing, you know, it was Disney's responsibility to market the films. And so Pixar had a small marketing department, and their role was to interface with Disney and do some marketing on our own. But we didn't have to build um, the entire, you know, capability to sort of, you know, put up billboard signs and, and create these big events. If Disney had the, the, the capability to do that, and we would piggybacking on that thought leader listeners don't go anywhere we have more of our interview after these words from our sponsor you want smart clear and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business with u.s bank you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs enhance control improve cash flow and expand your spend visibility u.s bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed they've been named a 2017 world's most ethical company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. What led you to uh, finally write the book? I'm sure you've been asked for years about that um, interesting chapter, uh, but uh, share with us what, what uh, was on your mind. Well, you're right. I, I was asked for years about it, and I gave some talks about it privately and publicly over the years. And I, I knew it was a great story because every time I gave a talk, no matter who I gave it to, it was, you know, I found people were just riveted by it. But uh, I wasn't really sort of inspired to write it as a book and, until a couple of things happened. And one had to do with the sort of tragic early death of Steve and the aftermath of all the, the books and, you know, the documentaries and films that came out. And, you know, I began to sort of feel like, wait a minute, like this story about Pixar is like an afterthought in a lot of this content. And I sort of started to feel like, you know, but this is a really important story. And I realized I was perhaps the only person that could tell this story. And so that began to gnaw away at me a little bit. And then, uh, as you may know, I kind of dropped out of corporate life uh, for a while, and I went in to explore a whole different dimension in life and Eastern philosophy and meditation and these things. And I, I had this sort of epiphany one day when I said, you know, there are some elements about Pixar that I could use as an analogy, a metaphor, if you will, for some of those things that I had been studying, particularly a philosophy called the middle way, which I think is really important. Uh, both for our personal lives and our uh, corporate culture as well. So I thought, wow, I could tell the whole Pixar story and I could put it in that context. And so I wrote that out as a talk, and I gave that talk at Harvard Law School and I, Harvard Business School, and I was invited to Pixar to give it, and it really went over well. And so that was the moment when uh, I said, okay, this, this is the time um, to, to sort of write a book about it. Um, and even that was challenging because I had done a lot of writing before, but I wanted to write this in a certain way. I wanted to capture it as a real-time adventure, like you're having this experience with me, uh, not just looking back from, from where I'm at now. And so I had to learn how to write that way, and I got some really good help with that. And, and um, so, and so it, it turned out. Looking back from a finance perspective, are there any lessons from uh, your Pixar Years <laughs> uh, from a finance, uh, again, what would those lessons be? 
Well, you know, Pixar was a uh, marriage between this um, this sort of creative innovation, creative and technical innovation, and sort of business and financial discipline that was needed to uh, breathe life into the company, you know, to make it sort of viable. That balance is really hard to find. And it's very tempting and sometimes easy for financial considerations to smother, if you will, the, the sort of forces of creativity and innovation. And so financial executives that are involved in that kind of balancing, you know, I, I think it takes quite a bit of courage uh, and, and sometimes some discomfort from, from the point of view of a financial executive. It's, it's only what I experience with it. But, you know, I think the effort to find that balance is really important and really worthwhile if we want to really continue to see, you know, incredibly innovative and incredibly creative work. So I would encourage anybody involved in that to, to um, you know, to be aware of that, that, that kind of risk, be aware of that kind of tension and, and, and try to navigate it rather than, than be afraid of it. The book is To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History. The author is Lawrence Levy. Lawrence, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Hi, it's Jack. At CFO Thought Leader, we're interested in hearing from you. We want to find out what you would like to hear more of or less of. And so we've created an ever-so-short survey in order to learn from you. The survey is now available right on CFOThoughtLeader.com's homepage. It's open to career finance executives of every rank. Meanwhile... It's that time of year again. CFO Appreciation Day is quickly approaching, and we are once more firing up our kiln and making our CFO Thought Leader Mug 2019 edition available to survey takers who enlist two or more of their finance team members to complete the survey. We'll mail you our also coveted CFO Thought Leader Mug at zero cost. So visit us at cfothoughtleader.com and give us an earful. We would greatly appreciate it. Some rules and restrictions may apply.